I'm Andrea Learned, and welcome to Living Change, a podcast exploring unconventional climate leadership. I talk to people who've converted their personal values into business and policy decisions in a load of different sectors. I believe that the more we're visible about these changes, the more we chart the way for other leaders wanting to create new social norms. In this special episode of Living Change, climate journalist and podcaster Amy Westervelt and I discuss her new podcast series, Light Sweet Crude. A crossover of her award-winning podcast, Drilled, Amy dives deep into ExxonMobil's activities in Guyana, debunking the moral case for fossil fuels. As a longtime climate journalist, she has a 30,000-foot view of what's going on. We get into the lessons learned from watching bad corporate influence. Things like the importance of local reporting and big-picture narrative framing something the good guys are just not as good at. We even had a light bulb moment over a new role corporations should consider. Hi. Hey. How's it going? <laughs> good. It's great to meet you. I was like, I've like interacted with her on social media before, but we've never talked. Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. a thing. And I don't know how long. I think it was, this is the thing that I actually want to talk about a little bit is climate media on Twitter. Like it's, you got, yeah. how are, how are you feeling about not the, you know, the, where it is right now, but just, that's how I found you. That's how we started yeah. to engage. Yeah. How is climate media feeling about Twitter right now? And tell me why you do use it a lot and why you have. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I feel, I feel conflicted about Twitter right now just mm. because of all of the stuff that's been happening there. And then there has been like a huge uptick in trolls yeah. and a lot of like, um, you know, kind of climate denial bots. There's this one bot that just like posts NOAA data at oh. every climate tweet, which nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so that you know, and also I'm I'm finding that like um, I'm not seeing as much of the people that I actually follow yes. in my feed, so mm-hmm. it's harder to keep track of what's going on with different climate things, unless I'm just like going to specific people's profiles and mm-hmm. looking at what they've been saying. Um, it's weird. It's weird. So I've been, I like I have a Mastodon account now too. And there's yeah. some interesting stuff happening over there as well. And I've been just spending a lot less time on Twitter, which is great for getting actual work done. So oh, that's who good. knew? Who knew? I know. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm really glad that I've been following you for a while and that we've engaged a little bit because it, it's super exciting to watch your work. And it's thank you. This new uh, show is really uh, there's only two episodes up so far. Yeah. And it's been amazing. But the thing that I noted just kind of leading in with social media is talking the second episode, talking with the publisher, Glenn. Yes. Right. And so, I mean, I I could just jump right in, but the deal is that he is just like, right. He's on this and he's on this and this. So tell me a little bit about when, like, that's a big deal that this guy is like fully trying to use it. So tell me about that. Yeah. It's really interesting. And actually like, um, I think I, I might put this out as a bonus episode because I had a long conversation about with him about like sort of the, the parameters of that as a publisher and like, how much you should and shouldn't be trying to influence, you know, public opinion about things or politics or whatever. And he kind of sees himself as a publisher as like, well, he's like, I'm not a journalist, I'm a publisher. So it's different, but also like, 
you know, I am also a citizen of this country, so I should be allowed to have opinions about how the country is being run and things like that. But anyway, it was interesting. But he is very like really out there on social media, making videos on TikTok and he's on YouTube and he like he's, you know, doing stuff all all the time. He has a newspaper and a radio station and he um, he likes to his main thing is to translate the news into local dialect, which they call Creolese. Yes, yes. As a way to like speak to predominantly like the the working class um, population there. So it's pretty interesting how he how he uses it. I mean, he's he's gotten really into TikTok. Like he he's making like a video a day. He's got like a green screen. He's really like elaborate sets. And, Isn't he just yeah. using it like a verb to I TikToked or I ticked or I just I'm, I'm TikToking you again today. <laughs> like he's it's yeah. He's very entertaining. I thought it was so cool, but it kind of gets right into kind of the influence that you're talking about, the influence of yeah. Exxon there, which is, and we can get deeper into it, right? Which is advertorials and all the stuff that we're going to talk about. And he's just like, yeah. what, how can I even, you know, Compete. come up with balancing that? And and so yeah. I guess the question there would be how into listening to social media or, or following TikTok or whatever are the people? So Tell me about the balance. Obviously, it's hugely yeah. out of proportion, but what's the balance of people that are paying attention to him versus reading advertorials or whatever? You know, actually, I think he's having a lot of influence. And I say that because I the things that Exxon starts to do marketing videos on are often the things that he's like getting people riled up about. Oh my gosh, I love that. So interesting. So yeah, like they he's been talking about this contract thing there for a long time where he's like, it's not really 50-50 because they are paying themselves back for expenses before anything gets split and all of this stuff. Like he's really been hammering on the point that this contract that Exxon has with the government of Guyana is not fair to Guyana and that they're never going to make any money off of it and all that stuff. And so Exxon just put up a bunch of billboards all around Georgetown being like 50, 50, it's a fair deal, you know? And I'm like, wow, Glenn, Glenn's getting to him. They're using his phrasing and his, oh, you know what? That He's got a lot of influence. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really big. So, yeah, I mean, he's really, um, I do think, and of course, like, people criticize him too. They're like, oh, he's just mad because he's not getting rich off oh. of the oil or, you know, he um, doesn't understand like what it took for Exxon to, you know, get this going. And, you know, it's perfectly fair that they pay themselves back some expenses and all of that kind of stuff too. Um, but yeah, he's definitely having uh, an influence and he's not afraid to like be very public. Um, so, yeah. That's incredible. So the episode, The Contract, is the second episode of Light, Sweet, Crude. And it's yeah. incredible. And so can you give, ha, 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 a short synopsis of what that is for, <laughs> for, for us today? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So okay. ex um, Exxon in 1999 actually like um, inked a, a contract with Guyana. And at that point, it was Exxon in partnership with Shell. And they, you know got an agreement in place to do some exploratory drilling off the shore of Guyana and like around uh, the coast and land and stuff too. But they didn't really like do much because they were both in Venezuela at the time and other parts of South America where it was a lot easier to get at the oil and nobody knew quite what the deal was 
in Guyana. But then in 2008, Exxon started exploring in earnest offshore, still wasn't really finding much. Shell pieced out. And in 2015, Exxon announced like, oh, we found a lot of oil. We think there's like a considerable amount of oil here um, and started drilling. So they um, inked a new contract in 2016. And that's the contract that's in place now. And theoretically, it's a 50-50 profit share between the oil companies and the country, the government of Guyana. But the way that it's been structured is that the oil companies can take 75% off the top um, to pay themselves back for various costs. And those costs continue to grow as they like look for more and more oil offshore and drill more wells. So the tab just kind of keeps getting bigger. <laughs> and, and the people of Ghana will not get anything, it seems like, right? That's like, that's kind of the, that's what a lot of financial analysts have said. Now, what they're doing about that, and this this is like maybe a little bit of a spoiler, but it's going to be in the news soon too. Oh, so okay. um, in April, the government of Guyana is going to have a big auction and they are going to auction off oil blocks to various other companies. Exxon has bought in to like be able to be a bidder as well. So they might end up, you know, doing another contract with Exxon on those blocks, or they might end up doing a contract with Chevron, which is one of the companies that's interested, Shell, like there's a lot of companies that have paid, there's like a fee you have to pay to get access to the the seismic data and whatnot to, to put a bid in. So instead, so what Guyana has said is like, basically, look, we can't, there's no way we're going to be able to renegotiate this contract. Like, you know, if Exxon wanted to renegotiate, it would only be like to try to make it more beneficial to themselves. Like their company, they're not going to be like, yeah, let's sit down and you know, make this pencil out worse for us, you know? Right, right, um, right. So the government has said, well, we'll just open it up to other companies because if we can get a couple of contracts in place that are more lucrative to us, then that kind of gets everyone off our back about not getting enough money in off on this oh, deal. Right, right. So, Which is very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting to see what happens with that. The other interesting thing right now that, that this show is just coming out is the IPCC report. <laughs> so, That's right. So it's just yes. like every story. Oh, the it's like the ind- yeah. indignation doesn't it, you can't even that isn't enough. I know. I know. Yeah. So, yeah, the IPCC has once again said there cannot be any more new fossil fuel developments. <laughs> okay. They've been saying it, um, you know, and it's but it. It's a really complicated issue because, and this is why actually we wanted to do this season on yes, Diana, totally. Because it's yes. a it's a really good example of what's going on kind of in the world right now. For the last four or five years, a lot of global South country leaders have been saying like, "Well, if you don't want us to drill for oil, then we need money from somewhere else to be able to adapt to climate change, transition to renewables, all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And have been saying, rightly so, like, how dare the global north tell us not to develop our fossil fuel resources when you guys did it for, you know, 100 years or more, right? Right, right. Um, and so, you know, it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The problem is 
the global climate system is the global climate system. And in many cases, we're talking about countries that will be hit first and worst by the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. So it's this real, it's this really like kind of ridiculous situation where because the global North has not come through on commitments that they've made to pay for climate adaptation and to pay climate reparations and to actually help the global South transition, they are in the position of having to pay for climate adaptation by developing fossil fuels, which doesn't make any sense at all. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so that's very much kind of the, the predicament for Guyana. 90% of Guyana's population lives on the coast. 90%. Wow. It will be underwater by 2030. I mean, that's pretty soon. That's very soon. It's the it's the first year that analysts are saying like could possibly be when they like start to get more oil money in. Oh, just just for context. Wow. You know? oh. So it's really, you know, so as we kind of, you know, build through the season, we're really looking at like, OK, what are the trade offs that are being made here? What are the climate implications of this? You know, how do we evaluate this idea that fossil fuels drive development and are necessary to end poverty and all of this stuff, because it's, it's a very entrenched narrative. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you look at the economics data from 1980 onward, none of the global South countries that got into oil have wound up better off. It's like, it's, it, you know, like maybe you have a little bit of a spike and maybe even on paper, it looks like, oh, the GDP has gone up. But if you look at per capita wealth, no. If you look at things like education or even access to energy, because that's another big thing that the industry is like, oh, well, you know, we need to get poor people fossil fuels, right? They can claim they, it's that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they claim that. Nigeria, which, you know, has been in the oil business for a really long time, is last in the world oh. on energy access. So I'm like, if you're going to make that argument, like you might want to invest in in like actually getting the energy to people so that they feel like they are getting something out of it. You know, it's right now, like global oil majors get rich and uh, that's pretty much it, you yeah. know. Um, so, yeah, it's really like it, it reminds me of what happened with um, cigarettes and now actually with combustion engine automobiles uh -huh. where like as, you know, the U.S. and Europe and other, you know, northern countries start to pass regulation on these things. Mm -hmm. Companies just shift the market elsewhere. It's happening with plastic, too. It's like, you know, it gets dumped on the global south. And then, you know, there's all of this sort of uh, like rhetorical gymnastics done to convince people in the global south that it's a gift, you know. I call it, I, I told something the other day, I feel like fossil fuels are the pox infested blanket of today. <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. The, what you were talking about, the social kind of the influence, what was the term that you used? It's just like they're uh, supporting the cricket team and making it a oh, big, yeah. I want, this building is fascinating. Yes. Building social license. Yeah. Let's dig in on that. Oh my goodness. It's so interesting. Oh. So yeah. In, they do this in like the U.S. and all over the world too. oil companies in general. So, you know, like Shell is the, the sponsor of Jazz Fest in New Orleans. <laughs> right. Oh, my right? God. Right. 
they sponsor like a bunch of different museums everywhere. Aquariums. They love to do aquarium exhibits that show like family how offshore platforms are for like <laughs> sea life. Yes. It's like, look, it provides something for coral to grow on. Oh, like, my okay. goodness. Oh, that term that that just really got to me um, because yeah. it's the it's the greenwashing. And just to bring it back kind of to what I work on, which is trying to do the opposite, right? So this is, are there ways that this influence? So in in the corporate sustainability world, say there's a lot of advising, start to write op-eds, start to whatever, whatever, right? So one of the bigger topics I had for you was, you now know what all this influence is doing kind of negatively. Have you seen like, well, shoot, if corporate leaders would just take these two tools and leverage them better, we could maybe counter this. Have you seen anything like yeah. that that you could point out? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. The, like the problem is often that the the industry has been doing it for so long and so broadly. So it's like, it's not just an op-ed. It's like at the same time, they'll have, you know, a program running in K to 12 schools. Right. Um, the jazz fest sponsorship and a bunch of museums, um, you know, lobbying on Capitol Hill, lobbying at the state level, lobbying at the local level and like a weekly op-ed and their CEO is like going on all of the cable shows and like, you know, framing the narrative. They're so far ahead and their money is so in all these areas before that anyone who's kind of starting to think about doing it on the positive side, it's just like a huge mountain. They don't think they could ever climb up. It is. But I do think that there's like a couple things. Well, and also I think it's important to remember, too, that they've been doing this for like over 100 years. That's why they're so good at it. You know, like they have they were like the early beta testers of like market research and polling and all of that kind of stuff, too. You know, so like so, yeah, like they've been that that was like in the early 1900s already standard oil of new jersey was doing like market surveys and really drilling down into you know and getting really really specific about like who like would re- like which messages would resonate with re- which audiences and all of that kind of stuff so so like i think number one like don't beat yourself up for not being able to immediately counteract that because it's like it's a lot you <laughs> Thank know you. yes number one <laughs> number one yeah well d- number yes. one don't think it's over already Exactly. Right. I think that's a good point to make. Okay. So what's number two? I actually think that people need to invest more time and, and money into like thinking through narrative framing. And that sounds really wonky and like abstract, but I, I like, this is the thing that I think the industry does so well. And like, is, is decide like what framing best um, like most benefits them. And then, and then they figure out, okay, what are all the ways that we're going to seed this? Mm-hmm. The, what I see uh, corporate sustainability people doing and like people in the climate movement doing a lot is like starting with the particular tool and then like figuring, figuring it out. out. Yeah. Versus like, okay, how do like, how do we want to change people's minds? And then like, what are the things that could actually get us there? Well, at a very, very small scale, one of the things that I see is 
literally people will call me for advice and be like, okay, we want to get on, you know, on the cover of whatever. And I'm like, does it, has anyone heard from your CEO for the last five years on this topic? No. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's, it's building, building social capital and to, and also to That's your right. point, like this narrative thing is really interesting. Have you seen some of the publicity just as an aside, have you seen yeah. some of the publicity lately about kind of Hollywood and changing storytelling in Hollywood? Have you seen any yes. of that? Yes, which I think is really, it's really important. And I feel like there again, there's this huge moment, right, in Hollywood right now where like there's like people are more interested. There's money Mm -hmm. um, being thrown at these things like, you know, Don't Look Up did really well. And that helped to unlock a lot of Mm -hmm. interest in these things. Yeah. Um, But there's huge potential for very problematic narratives to get baked in because in a lot of cases, like even to the extent that, you know, I know there's projects like the good energy project and there's another one called climate spring that's in the UK that are doing great work on trying to connect, you know, screenwriters and directors with climate experts. Yeah. Um, But climate is one of those things where I think, a lot of people think they have a grasp on it um, and it's so much bigger than what most people really necessarily know. And especially like there's just like there's like not everyone can have like 20 years worth of history on what's been going on in their head. You know, mm-hmm. so like, for example, someone told me the other day that they got pitched a story from the screenwriter and it was like a rom-com and this and that. And it's like she was she's like, yeah, I was reading it. And I was like, this is so great. And then one of the plot um, things in it was like that these were two climate scientists and they were going to an international climate summit and that one of them um, wanted to like fudge the numbers so that people would understand how urgent the issue was. Right. And I was like, um, this is literally climate gate. (laughs) And like, yeah. So she was like, Oh no. Like, you know, so she was able to tell this guy like, like, okay, let me sit you down and tell me about, tell you about this thing that happened. And why this is like problematic. And he was like, Oh, I had no idea. But of course you wouldn't. Cause like, that's such a tiny thing to know about, you know? Um, so. Yeah. And how would they? So if there are whole bodies and so this sector heading in that direction is fantastic. We're all for it. And there's, yeah. there are these organizations that are trying to help, but what would you even recommend or what would help them do it? Like, I feel like if everyone I mean, just read climate journalists and listened to your podcast, it sure would help. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, of course I agree. No, of course um, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really think, I mean, it's the same thing that I think we need in mainstream media across the board is like, there need to be people like with some amount of authority in the writer's room or in yes. the production company or whatever that actually know what they're talking about. Okay. Like, I actually don't think it's something that can be solved by like just bringing in a consultant for a few hours. Okay. Great. You know? Yes. Um, I feel like, I don't know, like almost, I almost wonder if like there, maybe there needs to be like a, a few companies that like just specialize in that. And like they partner with lots of bigger companies or something because. So would it be the chief climate science storytelling person? Like, so, so corporations have a chief sustainability officer, right? But so it's almost like, yeah, I, I so agree that you, that, and that you have to, like, you have to, you yeah. have to have someone on staff doing that. It's almost like the intimacy coordinator. Right now yeah. we have there's an intimacy coordinator on these sets. 
hello to having some oh, sort of a climate so science. that's so interesting. You're right. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. But yes, exactly. Like something like that. You're doing yes. intimacy wrong and we've got to change things. And so that's what climate is, right? Yes. Yes. That's a great parallel because it's similarly like kind of niche, but also huge, you know, but like, also huge with the impact. I mean, I've been yeah. watching that Hollywood space and I interviewed somebody earlier in the season on that. And I'm just going, this is amazing. Um, yeah. And and the influence. So I what I talk about a lot of yeah. my work is climate influence. Right. And living yeah. change is this podcast. But so influence. Right. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the greenwash and the negative. So what are these large bodies of sectors that have some major influence potentially, and how can we help trigger that? So Hollywood, corporations, like get people to really – and let's talk a little bit about pledges versus acting over and over again. (laughs) Right, because, well, I think it's – it is tough for corporations right now because I feel like there's this whole – system that's been created that like rewards companies for marketing. Right. I mean, literally like that's what it's like all, there's so many of these like um, CSR awards that, that just go off of like your CSR report, which can, could theoretically just be marketing, you know, like there's so many companies that have their chief sustainability officer is in the marketing department. Right. Like um, they're not in operations. They're not in, you know, so like, I think that um, thinking about it in a way that is different from the way corporations that are really just trying to hide emissions have done it, it's like a really good start. Like, I actually think that the companies that are serious about it need to kind of like chuck out what's been done before and think about yes. like, what Hallelujah. are we actually trying to do? And like, you know, like not what are we trying to market or what are we like trying to promote but like what are we actually trying to do mm-hmm. and then figure out the like the marketing piece around mm-hmm. it you know versus for the most part it's often like the marketing first and then figuring out the nuts and bolts later and like you know i think that's not great because actually like um companies especially when companies within the same industry can come together and sort of like yes consolidate some Mm -hmm. of that power Mm -hmm. and influence, they can really move the needle a lot. You know, um, my argument would also be that we need a couple first movers. Like we need like one or two. And and one of the things that I look at is what we're actually looking for is a perceived shift in social norm of leadership. We don't need the shift to actually be scientific. We need it to look as if the ball is already rolling. Yeah, that's. I think that's huge. And with regard to your work and the greenwashing, right? So it's greenwashing, make that sucker so irrelevant that those companies look like buffoons because all the cool companies, whether they have money or not, are coming out and being smarter about TikToks or whatever it is. We have a couple leaders that step out and do something different and take bolder steps. So yeah, I, yeah, there's so much power in this influence and, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> will pause there because I could just go on, but it, it, there's yeah. a real opportunity. So let's go back to Light Sweet Crude and talk about your role as a climate media person. And yeah. the, the beginning of the first episode is, hmm, my hotel room was canceled again. <laughs> right? Talk about that yes. a little scary. 
Yes. And actually, like, we cut some stuff out of that episode because um, because my lawyer was like, like, (laughs) you know, okay, yeah, yeah. It's just like Exxon in particular, oil companies in general are not super like friendly to journalists. And, you know, we see proof of this all the time. Um, And Exxon in particular has kind of a reputation for like trying to intimidate journalists. So like I interviewed this guy in the first episode, Steve Call, who wrote an excellent book called Private Empire about the way that Exxon operates like around the world. And he said, he was like, uh, I covered Al Qaeda. I covered the CIA and like Exxon was by far the scariest and the most intimidating and like hard to cover. I mean, when Um, I, when I listened to that, I was like, you know, I almost had to stop because you're right. He makes such an incredible point. (laughs) I know. I was like, Ooh. Um, but he's like, you know, yeah, like they do these things to try to intimidate people and they're very good at it. And, you know, and they're very powerful. I think that like he did a great job in that book of really showing how like these global companies in many ways are more powerful than any one government, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have so much influence across multiple governments mm-hmm. that they kind of operate like above, you know, above the laws of any one government. Um, and that can make them a little, you know, scary to cover. Um, a little bit, a little know. bit. And you, you're, and that's yeah. your, your work is digging in on that and this investigative reporting yeah. style. So how did you in your career get brave enough to go, you know what? I'm going to super yeah. dig in. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, I think I just have like a thick skin about that stuff. Like I, mm. I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I feel like I just kind of, I'm not a big rule follower and <laughs> <laughs> All right. When, when someone tells me no, I'm kind of like, are you sure? Because I feel like I could. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's partly it. And also, I just, I have like a really, like, I don't know, overdeveloped sense, sense of sort of like righteous indignation. I, I'm like very, like, you know, into underdog movies and all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like for me, I'm like on climate, I kind of feel like the, like most of us are the underdog and there's this, you know, group of very powerful people that Mm -hmm. have been able to, to do things mostly because we don't know about them or, you know, we don't have, um, or we don't think we have the power to Mm -hmm. stop them. But I think that the more that people know and understand the, the more, I don't know, like the better armed they are to actually like show up to the fight. And like that feels important to me. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you, you mention and then you dig in and you're speaking with this reporter, Kayana. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I'm always interested in climate reporting and especially these big stories that are far off, right? You really rely on some locals on the ground. She's incredible, yeah. but I'm certain you've run across She's those people. She's really incredible. Tell us yeah. a little bit about local reporting, her in specific, and just broadly in all of your work, how important that is and what it makes a difference about. It, yeah, it's huge. So her name's Kiana Wilberg. She's a reporter in Guyana. She's from there. Um, she's been on the oil and gas beat for the last five or six years. And initially, the, I met her because we were looking to hire someone on the ground in Guyana. Um, and purely coincidentally, my producer on the show had had a professor at university who was from Guyana. No way. Would, yes. <laughs> who was a professor at the university there for a while. And so she asked him, like, just 
on the off chance, hey, do you know anyone that's an oil and gas reporter? And he recommended Kiana. And that's how we met her. Wow. Um, And she's incredible. She's really young, but like so good and like so determined to do a good job. And she has this real like she she's quite religious, too. And she feels that like this is her calling and that like she is um she made a promise to God that she would like keep working on this reporting and which is interesting because, you know, part of what's happening, part of the social licensing that's happening in Guyana is that both Exxon and the government now are hiring journalists away from their newspapers to work in their corporate communications departments. Yikes. And um, they have tried to hire Kiana twice now and they, you know, they offer like a big salary and a free car and an amazing title and like all of this stuff. Right. Yep. But she has this feeling of like, you know, a, I have a responsibility to my country and my fellow citizens and B, you know, I made this commitment because she, she wanted to be a teacher. And when she tried to go be a teacher, they told her that she looked too young for the boys to take her seriously. Uh. I know. And so she like, but thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. Yeah, Cause that it worked out well for all of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she, um, she prayed and, you know, sort of asked for a, a, a job that would still allow her to read and write. And the next day she got an interview for this job at the newspaper and, you know, sort of away she went. So, um, so yeah, she's, she's amazing. So yeah, we started out having her doing some interviews for us on the ground because it was COVID and we couldn't Mm. travel and we kept having, like, we kept planning stuff and then it would get canceled because there would be a new wave or whatever. (laughs) So we were working with her back and forth the whole time. And then, um, And then when we went to Guyana, my producer and I, like we spent several hours with Kiana over the course of, you know, several days. And I was just, I was like, I think she has to like be in it. Like she's so compelling when she talks about the changes that she's seen and, you know, like everything that has been happening, like. I want it to be in her voice, not like me describing it or whatever, you know? So, right. um, so anyway, then we had to kind of like shift gears a little bit, but, um, but yeah, she's, she's been huge because we can ask her too. you know, we had her walk us through the sort of fraught political landscape in Guyana, which is very racialized oh, and very okay. complicated, you know? And mm-hmm. we had her, like, there's been little things that I'll see in the news where I'm like, wait, why is this happening? And she can explain it. And I, I feel like that's really critical if you're coming from outside of the country to, you know, not just like um, swoop in and sort of like what a lot of journalists will do is like come in and ask someone for like contacts and information and then that's it, you know. Oh, OK. And not use their then- help. Yeah. And well, and also like not really credit them or pay oh, them or like, yikes. you know, yeah. so I, I think it's important to actually like work with someone who's on the ground and like, who's from that place so that you're not, you know, stepping afoul of like certain cultural things too. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, you know, it's a very different place from, from the U S and we wanted to make sure that, you know, um, we weren't being, thoughtless you know yeah Um, so yeah so actually like she and glenn the publisher that we were talking about they're the ones that like um 
got me really thinking about the cricket team sponsorship because at our ho- like the at our hotel the first day I came downstairs in the lobby and there were all these cricket players wearing um, their uniforms and it just said like Exxon across the front. Oh no! And I was like, wow, like that's really something, you know? <laughs> and so I was talking to them about it and they were like, yeah, actually like that was a really smart move on Exxon's behalf because everyone in Guyana loves cricket. And before Exxon, they couldn't watch the games on TV. So that was a big deal. It was like, people were like, thank God for Exxon. Now oh, we can watch cricket on TV, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, um, yeah. So anyway, just stuff like that, which you wouldn't think about like an oil company, you know, sponsoring the cricket team or whatever but that's a big part of why they do sports sponsorships it's actually like the number one thing that they spend ad money on is advertising in um sports sporting events and then yeah like supporting um teams and stadiums it's so funny that you say that because i don't go to a lot of professional sports or whatever but i've been i don't know i think it was last season ted lasso right there's this there's this airline and yes, that was such a great Wasn't that line. a great plot? I just was like, and yes. so it's the same thing, but it goes back to the social license thing. Yeah. Right? It's like, That's ooh, because right. I, I actually, I was listening to the se- your second episode on the contract right before I came in, and I heard the part about the cricket, and just that, I was like, okay, yeah, that's just too yeah. much. Yeah, I there's, it's really, really creepy and super, super impact, you know, powerful to do it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It totally reminded me of that um, episode of Ted Lasso, too, or that little arc. The little it, arc. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was really. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the part of that, the bigger speaking of the bigger arc or the bigger narrative, you know, as we were talking about Hollywood and what could change is this sort of idea of debunking the idea that oil is bringing economic development and prosperity. And they're yes. just coming in with the storyline Oh, we're helping everybody. We're just saving the poor. Yeah. Yeah. This is such an interesting and, and like entrenched framing where it's basically, so like, you know, throughout the nineties and early two thousands, it was like the fossil fuel industry uh, would like every time they would talk about international climate negotiations, right. They would say, this is not fair because the U S is being asked to do Mm you know, all these emissions cuts, but like the, like all these other countries don't have to, and that's not fair. Right. Um, that's, that was the messaging that they used to block the Kyoto protocol, for example, and all that. Now the like U S doesn't want oil anymore or whatever, like is supposedly trying to get off of oil. The Mm -hmm. North is trying to transition off of fossil fuels. And so now it's that it would be unfair to, not allow the global South to have fossil fuels for longer. So they've completely switched their tune because now they need those countries, not just to develop oil and gas, but just to get hooked on it, to use it. So um, it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. So now the story is, you know, you can't put solving the climate crisis above solving energy poverty. Mm -hmm. The energy poverty issue is more urgent. And by that, they just mean, you know, access to regular energy, like to um, regular access to energy. So like Mm -hmm. consistent access to affordable energy. Um, Where the, the like debunking part comes in is like I pointed out about Nigeria before. 
there aren't a lot of examples of, you know, starting a fossil fuel industry actually solving the energy poverty issue, including in our own country, by the way, Mm -hmm. like, you know, there are still people whose like electricity bills are getting shut off in, you know, in oil and gas states in the U.S. So Mm -hmm. if proximity Mm -hmm. to oil and gas development was what dictated your access to or affordability of energy, then I think things would look very different in most countries in the world. Um, So, you know, and then the, the economics data doesn't back it up either. So they make the argument all the time that, you know, uh, access to fossil fuels uh, improves quality of life, extends lifespan, you know, all of these things. And actually there's peer reviewed economic studies that have disproven that mm-hmm. for the last decade plus that have shown that actually, you know, yes, there's a certain uh, um, level of energy that's needed to, to deliver, you know, a certain quality of life and a certain lifespan, but A, it doesn't have to be fossil fuel energy and B, Mm -hmm. there's diminishing returns on that. So, you know, once you hit like the, what, you know, what you need to cover the basics, more energy does not improve your quality of life or your lifespan Mm -hmm. or your health or any of those things. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, but it's, it's a very compelling narrative. It's not just for, you know, business people and, you know, the fossil fuel industry. But I think the climate movement too has been very quick to say, oh yeah, you're right. Like as part of a just transition, oh, interesting. we need to let these countries, you know, develop fossil fuels for longer. Yeah. And actually it's been interesting to talk to some of the organizers in those countries who are like, actually, we see that as another form of racism, colonialism, whatever, because what you're saying is, dump the stuff nobody wants anymore on mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. while you guys transition to a better, you know, cleaner energy situation with less air pollution. And, and they're going to get their you know, full due of years and years and years of this. It's like, no, 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 right. you learn this. We can skip this down here. <laughs> you exactly. Know, in South. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So there are quite a few people that are fighting against pipelines and against more fossil fuel development in global South countries um, who would like to see, you know, yeah, either a transition to renewables or in some cases, hydro, in some cases, nuclear, like there is, you know, an something other than things. fossil fuels. Yeah. But yeah. They're yeah. like, why are you forcing us to uh-huh. get hooked on this thing that everybody says is going to be worthless in 10 years? You know, that's the other thing too, is like oil companies have been worrying about what they call stranded assets for mm-hmm. a long time, which are like, you know, oil reserves that they have a claim to that they're not going to be able to um, to tap and sell before, you know, nobody wants it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. This is part of why I think that they're front-loading expenses in Guyana because they want to make the most money while oil is still relatively high and before, you know, yeah, like half of those reserves in Guyana may end up being a stranded asset. We don't know yet. Um, and if it, they are, then it will be Guyana that inherits that problem, not Exxon. Um, yeah. So, and that's true of all these other countries, right. too. I, yeah. what's, what's so interesting about what you said about the the Exxon and the fossil fuel companies knew and they were doing this Global North thing. And then they saw the writing on the wall and switched yeah. their narrative. And it kind of goes yeah. back to what we were talking about earlier, which is why are, is, are no, is, is no one on the 
positive side or that knows what to do, thinking that long term in that arc and going, you know what's going to happen? Yes. These companies are going to start doing this narrative in Global South. We should be ready. That's right. It wasn't like we couldn't see that coming, right? Exactly. Exactly. (sighs) I think like, yeah, we certainly should have been able to see it coming um, because I think, you know, it's quite predictable. Um, And especially, like I said, once, you know, you saw, especially after people saw what happened with tobacco, I think Mm -hmm. like the light bulb should have gone off for a lot of folks that like, oh, that's what the fossil fuel companies are going to do as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I said, they're doing it with plastic too, where they're ramping up plastic production, even though nobody wants it. And they're trying to spur more demand for plastic in Africa and other global South areas. And then they're going to be like, it's not our fault. All these countries in Africa just love plastic. They're demanding it, right? Right. We're just supplying a demand. But so yeah. then it goes to your work. I mean, the bigger picture of climate media, you know, how. Yeah. So it's like you're unearthing these and you're sort of talking about this and really pointing it out and being loud, right? Yeah. And then I know there's this whole organization called Covering Climate, you know, trying to do a better yeah. job of it and all of that. It's just like, is that. Are, is covering climate educating people fast enough or what do you see the climate media kind of their role and and are they going to get on it pretty soon to the degree that we need them to? Yeah, I do think that, well, I think the media um, has a huge role to play. The media has played a huge role in delaying climate action. And I yeah. think that it needs to acknowledge that and really like focus on doing, you know, playing a role in, in climate action now mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the media has been used as a tool by various companies for a really long time. And there are still some very entrenched ideas around, you know, oh, um, if I'm going to quote a climate scientist, I also need to quote an oil CEO <laughs> right. or, you know, whatever, oh. so that nobody thinks I'm like an activist or biased or right, whatever. Right, and like, right. look, you know, when we report on stuff, I always go to um, Exxon or Shell or Chevron or whoever it is and make sure that we do really thorough fact-checking. We give them an opportunity to comment. I just Mm -hmm. this morning have been going back and forth with a spokesperson from Exxon about, you know, something that she had a problem with in one of the drilled episodes, which is always, you know, it's a little, like, interesting. Um, (laughs) But, like, I'm not like, oh, you shouldn't even talk to those companies. I just think that, like, you need to evaluate what they're saying through the lens of, you know, what are they trying to achieve by having this conversation with me? Mm-hmm. What are, what do they want to be getting out to the public? And like, does the actual data that I can gather from various sources mm-hmm. back up what they're saying or not? Like, is it just their opinion or is it fact? And like, that's our job as journalists. And I think that like, there is starting to be some movement where I think journalists more and more are viewing these companies with like a healthy bit of skepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately we're also at a time when the, the business model for media for media is totally failing. You yeah. know, I mean like yep. there's just, just this morning I was reading about the Texas observer being, oh, I saw down. that. Yeah. Um, we've ha- we're losing outlets. Um, NPR just laid off 10% of its staff. Right. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's there again, though, actually, I think similar to what I was saying about the Hollywood stuff, I think that more than having like a team of climate reporters or, you know, a whole climate desk or whatever, I think it would be really good to have like 
a really high level climate editor that's helping to provide that lens on all of the stories, because that's really what's happening. It's like almost every story has some kind of a climate angle to it. Mm -hmm. And we should be like working those angles in where it makes sense. I mean, you don't have to shoehorn it into everything, but you don't have to, for the most part, like it's pretty, it's like pretty obvious Mm -hmm. layer that's there. Um, in most stories. I think you just came up with a, a new career that is needed that maybe there could be majors in all sorts of gigantic universities. The climate editor, the person that a- gives context yeah. to anything, and that could be Hollywood. It could be corporations, yes. right? It could be all these sectors. They all need an editor, which is they need some smart person who's watching the overall thing, right? The context yeah. and the history and can pull their networks and be like, you know what? I'm not sure of this, but I'm, I know exactly who to call and whatever. Exactly. I think think you're onto something. I think we need a whole new career. I think this is, I think the climate editor is the thing. And I I feel like journalists, you know, you all could have somebody that you can more easily do that with, as could I and anything I'm reporting on or talking about. I think, I think our job is done here with this podcast because we did it. We did it. That that was great. So a couple more things, because I would be remiss since the podcast is living change. One of the things I'm wondering is, Tell me a little bit about your pivot point personally, like how your be any behavior change where you're like, you were like, oh my goodness, I need to start doing this. Any sort of behavior change or living change uh, examples that you can tell me about in your life? Yes. Um, I, I actually, I really like this question because I feel like there's, there's this kind of false dichotomy in the climate space a lot about like individual action versus yes. systemic change. Yes. And it's like, no, we need all of it. Like individual action is how you drive towards systemic change Mm -hmm. for the most part. Also, most of us are part of the like global top 10%, which the IPCC just said, like, you know, we're responsible for like half of the world's emissions, right? right? Mm -hmm. Which means that our habits do actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that anyone should beat themselves up and say, oh, I can't hold Exxon accountable because I haven't stopped using straws or whatever it is, you know, at all. Um, But I do think it's important for people to kind of like, you know, take ownership. So anyway, for me, the thing that the things I always like to focus on are non-consumption things because I feel like a lot of times this this question becomes like, how are you buying different things? Oh, yes, yes. Or like, like how are, you know, so I'm like, oh. And then it sounds kind of really judgy, like just right away. It sounds really judgy. And it also, it also reduces people's individual power to um, purchasing power and not like political power or organizing power or community power or, you know, like those kinds of things. Yeah. So for me, There's a bunch of things like I, you know, try to walk everywhere I can um, if I can. And and including like even if it's going to take me two hours, I'm like, I'll just walk, you know. That's living (laughs) change for sure. Yes. I love it. And um, but I also am really big on like and on having a lot of conversations with people in different communities. Thank you for saying that. What's going on? What could we be doing? Like, and in a, in a, a like a, a non-judgy way. In a casual. Because, yeah. I feel like people need to have the space to be like, I don't really understand why X, Y, Z. Or, you know, well, I heard that actually, you know, 
climate's not that bad. And, you know, maybe we don't need to make really urgent changes or whatever it is. Like I think, or I'm really freaked out about it. And I like, can't have a conversation without freaking out, you know, like that's all of that is really, really valid. And I think it's helpful for people to be able to just like have a conversation about Mm -hmm. it where it's not so high stakes. Um, So that is something that I like make a point of doing a lot. Great. And then I also think I'm not like, oh, make sure you vote because I know that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people feel like their vote is watered down or doesn't matter as much or whatever. And I understand why that is. But I also think that especially at the local level, there are a lot of ways to become civically engaged. Yes. And like finding out, you know, what's really going on in your region you know Mm -hmm. who's like I um I live in Costa Rica now but I was living in Tahoe in California which like is this very beautiful place there's like mountains and a lake and you know it's lovely um and I think most of the people there had no idea that the guy who was our congressional rep was like a really like pro-logging climate denying, like pro fossil fuels guy, you know? And so there were a lot of, there were a lot of efforts underfoot there to try to just make people aware of that, to be Mm -hmm. like, Hey, because for a long time, I think pre-Trump, especially Americans were really tuned out to what was happening in local and state politics. Yes. National too, but like, you know, sometimes it feels like it can feel like you're actually having more of an impact when you're working at like the county level or the Mm -hmm. city level. And, and in a big way right now, cities and counties actually have quite a bit of power. You know, they can set like, you know, certain laws they can bring, they can hire private law firms to Mm -hmm. file lawsuits. All the big climate cases right now are filed on behalf of cities and counties. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm so glad you're saying this because half of the people I've interviewed for season one are local leaders, right? So Alex Alex Fish from Culver City, you know, why does he, why did he ride a bike for transportation? Bowen Ma of North Vancouver, like why does she, all these people that I've interviewed ride a bike for transportation or very specifically less car, et cetera, and making changes in bus lanes and the influence that they have. And then I will say to your point, by having influence and by being seen riding a bike or whatever themselves, then right. right, it's pushing out. So it's almost like your conversations, your vote, right. you're mentioning it reverberates hugely. And I think people don't be- understand that they actually do have influence if they mention, I rode my bike here or I'm voting for this guy. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Huge, huge influence. And actually, there's a there's a lot of research, too, that shows that if you are a public figure of any kind talking about climate, that it is actually really important for you to, to be, be like seen living those beliefs yes, too. Like that, yes. Cause actually like the hypocrisy <laughs> there gets it's really evident. Amplified. Yes. Yeah. And that's the whole yeah. reason that I'm doing these interviews. So I'm mm-hmm. thank you. I am so glad that this worked out for us to talk, Amy. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. I'm super excited about light, sweet, crude. I hope everyone listens to it because it just, it, again, it just raises these issues up and we'll start to think differently. We'll read the news differently. I just thank you so much for taking thank the time. You. It was so fun to talk. Yes. I'm so glad we finally got to talk in real life or close to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll see each yeah. other somewhere along the way. But um, I, yeah. I'm happy to help amplify this. And, and just I'll see you on Twitter. Awesome. Sounds great. 
Clearly one discussion does not do Amy's wisdom and expertise justice, nor does it come anywhere close to covering all that light, sweet crude includes. But listening to that kind of makes you want to learn more, right? Head on over to the Drilled podcast feed to hear the whole thing. And what a huge pleasure to chat with a climate media leader I've been following for years. Amy is truly a force of nature, and I know her reporting will energize you along your path to climate influence. Living Change is produced by Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Until next time, paddle safely.